time. <laughs> Praise God. And you know, it's not just words. It is the beautiful, blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Praise His name. Well, if you're in the fifth grade or younger, there is a service downstairs for you, and you're welcome to go. And the rest of you, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Yesterday, we had a very special time here. Um, We were able to celebrate the uh, church ceremony for the wedding of Joseph and Vichelle Kocher. And uh, it was doubly special because Vichelle is from Philippines. And uh, I asked her, how do you do weddings in the Philippines? And uh, I think maybe at first, when we first had that conversation, she thought I was kidding, but I wasn't. I said, no, I, I want you to have an experience like you would have in the Philippines. So explain it to me. So she did, and she brought me in um, this uh, uh, liturgy from the Internet that, as I began to study and do some research, realized was a, a traditional Filipino wedding. She said, this is the way it's done all over the Philippines. And, you know, we have, we have the symbol of the rings and the unity candle frequently in our services. But they add to that an exchanging of Aras coins, which represents provision and blessing in life. And they have a veil that covers them. And then they have a cord that is uh, turned to, to form a cross and actually creates the symbol of infinity, and it's laid over their heads and represents the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Son is in the middle of the cross, and it represents the bonds of love. and, and It's just very, very special. So we had quite uh, the unique uh, ceremony yesterday afternoon, and it was a real delight to share that with them. Made me do a lot of thinking about marriage and marriage customs and customs around the world and the different ways that cultures express this human commitment, human covenant that we call marriage. And this morning, as we look back in Genesis, there's just no question, biblically speaking, <clears throat> that the foundations and the very establishment of marriage were given by God in the beginning as a part of His design for the human race. That's obvious in Genesis chapter 2. What may not be quite as obvious is that the foreshadowing of the church is also found in these chapters. So that uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 have a forecast or a picture of what the relationship is like between Jesus Christ and His bride that Paul brings out quite clearly in Ephesians chapter 5. And then, besides these two teachings, although I'm going to devote another entire sermon to it in the future, there's also a hint of eschatology. In other words, the doctrine of last things or the return of Jesus Christ. Because we see in the marriage covenant and in the typical, as in type, relationship between Christ and the church, we see a hint of last things as the original creation is restored as Jesus comes for His bride. So all of that is wrapped up together, and this morning we're going to kind of uh, delve into what the Bible says about marriage and about the church in these early chapters. Now, if you turn to Genesis chapter 2 and you look at verse... Oh, let's start with 22. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib or the stuff which He had taken from the man and brought her to the man... And the man said, and this is what Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. 
Do you ever wonder what Adam felt when he woke up? You know, I mean, did he have an incision? Was was he missing something? Did 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 he? I don't know. You know, I don't. I, God's a really good surgeon, and he doesn't need a knife. So I don't know what went on there, but somehow or another, when Adam woke up and he saw this woman, and I think some of you have heard me say before, there's a little bit in the Hebrew uh, expression here that's kind of like, wow. You know, I mean, he's just amazed at this woman, and yet he recognizes that she has come from him, and that she shares his essence, and that she has made like him, but not like him. And so he recognizes his complement. And then Moses, by inspiration, gives us this commentary, this parenthetical statement, because Moses is writing this several thousand years down the road. And Moses says, by inspiration, for this cause... A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, Moses, by the Holy Spirit's direction, goes back to the beginning and says, this is why we get married. Now, Biologists would have us believe that, evolutionary biologists would have us believe that life on this planet just evolved. And uh, if you think about that for a moment, the, the, the improbability of evolution just continues to run into walls. Uh, you know, because what are the chances? What are the chances that a human man and a human woman would evolve at the same time in the same place to find each other for the beginning of the human race. I mean, what are the chances of that happening? It just doubles the chances of evolution happening at all. And I know biologists would kind of look at me and say, well, that's uh, an oversimplification. You know, they could have been not totally one or the other over time and Yada, yada. And biologists would have us believe that the whole thing is simply for procreation and the uh, development of the race. And, and, and it's all about uh, survival and sexuality and, and all of that kind of stuff. But the scripture cuts to the chase. You know, and, and you, can, you can look at nature and you can look at, at the reproduction of animals and you can look at all of that kind of thing. And, and see simply sexual or asexual reproduction, whatever you want to look at out there. But God says it's not about biology only. It's not about procreation only. It's about a partnership, a divine plan, a divine purpose for this reason. Because God made them male and female, made them in His image, made them together to reflect the image and glory of God for this reason. A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I always say in every wedding ceremony that I ever uh, perform, I always say in the early part of the ceremony as I'm giving the uh, homily as they call it, my, my words to the couple, I remind everyone that marriage is God's idea. That it was by His design. That it is His prerogative to establish its foundation, its contractual agreements and relationships within the marriage, and its duration. It is God's prerogative. He is the one who created this thing we call marriage. It's not our idea. We can't modify it as we will, except to our peril. Because God Himself has established the foundation, the nature of the relationship, and the duration. And the Scripture says, 
in this way for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, the second part of that is, shall leave his father and mother. Another thing that I note about marriage today, marriage since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, marriage in every culture and every place, is that when it's even at its best, it is still somehow not quite what God originally intended. Sin has been introduced to the world. There is somehow or another a marring of the image of God. There's a marring of the perfection of the relationship. Something has been damaged, and every culture is in some way broken in this regard. It's reflected in many cultures in the high rate of divorce. It's reflected in the abuse and subjection of women. It's reflected in many other ways. And in many cultures, including the culture of the Jews in the first century in Jesus' own lifetime, it was common for the man to arrange the marriage through, the family would arrange the marriage, the man would pay a dowry or a bride price, and he would go and take his bride and bring her to his parents' home, where he had built an addition, and bring her home to there. Uh, we, I mentioned to you, we celebrated the exchange of the Aras coins in the Filipino tradition yesterday, and that stemmed from the ancient tradition of the bride price. Because in an agrarian society where uh, you're trying to make your living by farming and, and survival, and uh, every family has to grow and produce and take care of every hand is needed. Children grow up fast in those cultures, even in our own American history. It was not unusual for a 13 or 14-year-old to be bearing what we consider adult responsibility today. Because every person had to do their job or the family died. That was the bottom line. And so they would work and work on the farm. So what happens if you take a hand out of the, out of the family unit? What happens if you take this daughter away from her parents? Well, they've not only lost a daughter, but they've lost a crucial part of their labor force. And how do you compensate? Because she's going over with the guy, and now she's going to be helping their family. Well, you pay for her. You, you give that family a bride price, you know, and you, you make that dowry payment, which is compensation for lost labor. It really makes sense when you think about it. It became derogatory in many cultures, but it, it, it kind of makes sense. And out of that culture today, the, 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 the Philippines celebrate the exchange of the Aras coins from that tradition because now it symbolizes that the man is ready and able to care for this woman and he has made provision and he's going to, to offer her a basket of coins that represents his material blessing and now they're going to share it. They're going to walk together. Well, however you do it in whatever culture, what God says is, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. There's nothing in here about bringing her home to live under dad's roof. It's a man will leave his father and mother, and those two together, this man and his wife, will start a new family unit, a new generation, they will be a team among themselves. My mother used to quote an old saying, and she did not do it with a smiling face necessarily. She would frequently say, uh, a son is a son until he takes a wife. A daughter is a daughter all her life. And uh, she would just kind of look at my brother and me with like, so I just kind of expect you to run off and leave me. <laughs> I'm going to have to fend for myself. You know, you know, that was the implications. It was calculated to produce guilt. That was the purpose. 
But nonetheless, it's biblical. It is scriptural. For this cause, a man will leave his parents and take his wife, and they will become a team and move into a new family unit and start another generation. And then he says, and they will become one flesh. Now, there's no question that the sexual union is is in view here. I mean, that's clearly part of it. And um, just to dispel some bad theology, there are those who believe that the original sin, the fall of Adam and Eve, was sexual intercourse. You've got to be warped before you can even go down that path, and, and you can just take that at face value. But clearly, that is not the case. God designed sex. God is the one at the end of chapter 1 who made them male and female and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. That was his idea. Sexuality and all that it involves was God's plan. I remember many years ago counseling with a couple that were having some difficulty. And they were believers. And so um, I said to them, you know, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to invite Jesus Christ into your bedroom. And, and I want you to just worship and imagine uh, his presence there with you. I'll never forget her, her reaction. She looked down at the floor and she covered her face. And she said, I don't even want to think about God being there with me. And I thought, well, uh, we've got some work to do here. Uh, We need a new perspective on human sexuality. We've kind of got this off the wire because God says when he got done with everything, he said, this is very good. This is my blessing. This is my plan. But there's more there than sexuality. They will become one flesh, one unit, one body, one focus, one goal. A married couple comes together and they stay together. They develop their own identity. Some of you that have had the experience of of divorce or the experience of the death of a spouse, in many cases, many people will testify that all the friendships that they enjoyed as couples change after those events. And all of a sudden, things are different. And people who were your close friends now just don't, you're not that close anymore. Because a married couple has an identity as a couple. There's a oneness that goes there that extends far beyond a physical relationship. There's a oneness of family direction. There's a oneness of of embracing life's goals, of identifying who we are. There's a culture that develops in homes. People do things a certain way as they blend their histories into one new family unit. And, and you know that when you visit people. They, they do things differently than you do them at your house. And sometimes it's kind of interesting how that blending of, of the family unit goes together. I grew up loving homemade soup. My wife grew up loving homemade soup. So when she said to me, when we were fairly newly married, I'm going to make homemade soup. I was looking forward to homemade soup. I did not know that her definition of homemade soup was not my definition of homemade soup. I mean, we were, we, had, we were using the same words. I thought we were talking about the same thing. When my mother made homemade soup, she took a, a, a ham bone with ham on it, and she cooked it down, and she added fresh beans to it, and she added fresh corn to it, and fresh okra, and fresh tomatoes, and she began to build this vegetable soup with ham, in the, and everything was fresh, and I could identify everything in it. I mean, I could look at that, and I knew what was in the soup. But in my wife's family, they saved the leftovers and put them in the freezer. 
And then when the soup day came, they took all the leftovers out and they put them in the pot. It could be spinach, it could be asparagus, it could be anything. And that all went in the pot and it all went together. And when I came home that day to homemade soup, I did not tell this story in the 8 o'clock service. I don't know why. But I, but I came home at, where is my wife anyway? Oh, she's not here. Oh. <laughs> so I got home at the end of the day and, and, and here was homemade soup. And I couldn't identify anything in the pot. And there was no ham. There were bits of Teflon floating around in there that had come off of the cheap pan someone gave us for our wedding. Which was my only redeeming excuse not to eat it. Because I was really concerned about swallowing the Teflon. Even though I couldn't identify anything else in the pot. Well, eventually we navigated the waters of homemade soup. We came to an agreement on what homemade soup in our family looked like as the two became one. And many other things began to merge and our lives began to become intertwined in inseparable ways. Now, we have our traditions. And I don't know how they're going to get past one or who they're going to, but, but we know how we do things. And you do things like that. This one flesh thing is that you, uh, you develop a culture, an identity, a personality that is shared. And yet, you do not cease to be an individual. That's a part of the mystery of marriage. And this is God's plan. This is His purpose. God's purpose for the married couple in the end of chapter 1 is a partnership. And I want to underscore that because we have perverted the understanding of the marital unit because of sin. It has impacted us. It has impacted, sin has impacted the way Women have been treated in most cultures. Sin has impacted the theology of the church to where we have a misunderstanding of God's intention. When you look in chapter 1 of Genesis, and by the way, this is not something that came to me easily. I grew up in a subculture that was comprised of three other subcultures. I grew up a Baptist, a male in the South. That's a triple whammy. And it definitely affects your perspective. Because I grew up with a viewpoint that women were second class, under the authority of men type citizens, and that was biblically right. That was what I was taught. And it was demonstrated in, in my culture. And uh, there was a lot, there was a lot implied in the, 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 the gentleman that was always coming to the rescue of the little lady that got involved in what you did with doors and you know, car doors and elevator doors and all kinds of things, and it all got wrapped up. But there was an impression that was generated that was not accurate. And it's, it's taken a lot of prayer and a lot of biblical study to, to fix me in some of these areas. I'm just confessing that to you because we need to come back to the Scripture and evaluate the Scripture. What does the Bible say? And, uh, you know, and I, and I will, and I will tell you, I will testify to one of the things that had a significant impact on me. Because I grew up, how many of you grew up kind of like I did? Could I just see your hands? Anybody around like that? A few of you. Okay. So, so you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, um, just ignore that. But, um, I became 
an emergency medical technician and a paramedic, and I started working with women who were emergency nurses and flight nurses. And all of a sudden, I found myself teamed up side by side with incredibly intelligent, highly capable, strong leaders who were fully able to take charge of a scene and a situation and bring order out of chaos and command emergency medical teams and, and direct care. And I thought, wow. And then I met my first female helicopter pilot who flew one of those medical helicopters, which is no small feat in itself. You have to be an unusual pilot to get picked for that program. And, uh, and, and my whole perspective began to change about leadership and competence and ability and, and intelligence and, and all that went with that. And, and God was at work. And what I see in the end of Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, and God blessed them after making them male and female, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and every living thing that creeps upon the earth. God said this to them. The man and the woman were co-regents. They were together to rule. They had dominion. They were given authority. And I see them standing together at the close of that sixth day, side by side, hand in hand, the man and his wife, with God's presence in their midst, looking out on a world over which they had been given the stewardship. God designed marriage to be a partnership. It was intended to be a walking together through life. In fact... It was one of the old Puritans that um, said in, in his commentary, Matthew Henry, that God did not take stuff from Adam's head to make the woman that she would lord it over him, nor did he take stuff from his feet to make the woman that he would trample her underfoot, but he took stuff from Adam's side that she would walk beside him and be his partner, and they would form a team. That was God's creative purpose. Now, having said that, there is also a picture of Christ and his church in the relationship we call marriage. And it was there from the beginning. And there's no question, as the Apostle Paul brings interpretation to this marital union and looks back on it, we find some interesting things. There's, there's no denying the fact that Adam was created first. And that God then created Eve to come alongside him as his helpmate. And the scripture says that in the New Testament. Adam was made first and then the woman. There's also no question whom God held responsible in Genesis chapter 3 for the sin. Because God had placed Adam in their partnership in a role of leadership. Do you know what a 50-50 partnership is? It's a formula for disaster. Because if you come to a stalemate, that's exactly where you are. You're at a stalemate. You cannot progress. If you can't agree, you can't move. And a 50-50 partnership is a formula for disaster. If you go into business, don't ever go into business 50-50. Hold at least 1% or yield 1% of the shares. Because if you don't do that you're not going to be able to move forward. It's human nature to come to points of disagreement. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm already into the sin game, okay? I'm ahead of myself. But there's no question that leadership is a part of the role of Adam in this relationship in the garden. Leadership is not being the boss, necessarily. It's not being the ruler. It doesn't mean 
I'm the one in charge. You can be a boss and not be a very good leader and people still have to obey you. How many of you know a boss like that? Don't raise your hand. They have authority. They have control over you. You would not want to take them home for dinner. They are not nice. Rulers... Kings, those in authority in this world, oftentimes reign like dictators. And nobody feels warm and fuzzy toward them. They rule by pure might and power, but not by love. Leadership implies something entirely different. Leadership implies inspiration. It implies encouragement. It implies being the kind of person that others are willing to follow. And there's no question in the relationship that although they were partners, Adam was designated as, in the marriage, the leader. We can't get around that, much as our culture and current society would like to. We know that because when the fall occurred, who was having the conversation with the devil. Eve was. Who is the first person that took a bite out of the fruit? Eve did. When the Bible talks about how sin got into the world, at whose feet is the blame laid? Adam. For as by one man, sin entered the world. You say, wait a minute. They're there at the tree. The conversation's going on with Eve. What's Adam got to do with that? And she's the one that ate the fruit the first time. So how come Adam gets blamed for the sin? It's very simple. (laughs) He was responsible. He was the leader. You say, what was he doing when this temptation was going on? And there's a very important little preposition there that just opens the whole thing to, uh, you know, amazing wonder. So she took the fruit and ate of it and gave it to her husband also who was with her. Here he is, standing right there. This conversation is going on between her and the serpent. He says nothing. He never opens his mouth. He provides no leadership. He takes no initiative. He does nothing. In fact, the implication is that he was complicit In the agreement. And Eve, who was in some way deceived in this process, and and I, I think that there was a spiritual blindness there that came out because you have a team all of a sudden acting independently. And may I say to you that when you are placed in a position under authority, if you choose to act independently, you put yourself at risk. You put yourself at spiritual risk. I don't think Eve was deceived because she was a woman and therefore stupid. Okay? I've already hopefully dispelled that myth. There's no difference in intelligence. You can measure it in different arenas, but it tends to overlap still. And and women are as intelligent as men on the whole. Women are as perceptive. They can can develop a plan, a strategy, as well as any man on the planet. They can do that. So this is not an issue of intelligence. Something exposed her to deception. And I think that what exposed her to, to deception was because in the partnership, a question should have been asked. Adam, what do you think? Just as if the roles had been 
turned around, Adam should have said, Honey, what do you think? There should have been some communication. And there wasn't. And because of that, she put herself at risk and in a spiritual way opened herself to deception, which could have been avoided if the partnership had been working at that moment, but sin was already fulminating. And Adam, the leader, is passive. Now, I hate to say it, but that describes the state of many, many marriages. Where the wife is making decisions and setting the tone, and the husband is sitting idly by, saying nothing. There's no teamwork there. There's no one flesh going on there. There's no togetherness. There's not a partnership. There are two people who are living under the same roof, acting independently with different agendas. And it's a formula for disaster. And in this situation, Adam's failure was because God held him responsible in the marriage relationship. Now, there's some things that we need to pick up from this and some things that we need to to clarify. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to continue the thread. And in that passage, make some of those points clear. I want to begin reading in verse 18 in Ephesians 5. Because Paul is coming, he's in the the midst of his practical admonition. You know how Paul writes his letters? He, He first of all lays a doctrinal foundation. He gives you the facts. Here's the, here's the doctrinal truth. And then he applies it. He makes the practical application. He says, now what I've told you means this in your lives. And So in chapter 4, he begins that practical application, and he has some things he wants to say about the church. And then he gets over here to this passage in chapter 5, verse 18, and he says, And do not get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, he is about to talk about the relationships that exist between a husband and wife, between parents and their children, between employers and employees. He is going to apply the biblical teaching of who we are in Jesus Christ to all of these other relationships. So when he says, be filled with the Spirit, this applies to everything. And it applies to marriage. Christian marriage has the best chance of restoring the original ideal of any form of marriage. Christian marriage can do that. And in Christian marriage, the beginning point is always be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're not filled with the Spirit, then who are you full of? Yourself. And if you're full of yourself, who are you looking out for? Yourself. And that means you're not looking out for your spouse. Her or his goals and Interests and concerns are not your chief concern. So he says, be filled with the Spirit, because that puts you in a right relationship with God and with each, with each other. And speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That talks about your attitude and your dependence upon Scripture and a life filled with praise. And then he says, and always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and submit yourselves one to another in the reverence or fear of Christ. Now, if we never said another word about marriage, I'm here to tell you that if if everyone would pay attention to these verses, all other relationships would solve themselves. If you're filled with the Spirit of God... If the fruit of your lips is the joy of the Lord and the, and the richness of the Psalms and the Scriptures, and you're thankful for the things around you, which has a dramatic impact on your attitude, 
and you are humble toward one another, mutually submissive in the reverence of Christ, if you have those principles in place. I don't care if it's a marriage, if it's a parent-child, if it's a boss, an employee. I don't care what the relationship is. A lot is going to be solved right away. And that's the background that Paul gives as he moves into chapter 5. We often read this section out of context. It's in the context of being spirit-filled. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, himself being the Savior of the body. Let me just jump over to verse 32 real quickly and then come back. But just notice in verse 32 that he says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, I thought he was talking about marriage in this whole passage. And then he breaks in with this thing in verse 32 and says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's why we can find the church in Genesis chapter 2. Because marriage is all about Jesus and the church. It's a human relationship that has been designed by God to picture for us a divine relationship that exists between Christ and the church. And so, Paul says, I'm talking about a mystery, but I'm really talking to you about Jesus and the church. Now, having said that, let's go back and read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. What does that mean? That means that just as Jesus Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the family and of the wife. Now, there's nothing in the passage that says men are the head of women. Okay? That's where cultures that subordinate women get off track. Because that is not biblical. We stand as equals. We even stand as equals in Jesus Christ when we're married. But in the marriage relationship, there is an economy of the partnership. And in that economy of the, of the partnership, God designates the husband as the responsible one, therefore he invests in him authority within the home. Do you follow me with that? Everybody knows, right, principles of management, bad delegation. What is bad delegation? Giving someone responsibility with no authority. That is bad delegation. You expect them to get something done, but they have no power to do it. That doesn't work. If you're going to give somebody a job, you've got to give them the resources and you've got to give them the authority to act. If you don't give them authority, then their hands are tied. God invests the authority of the home in the husband. He says, I'm holding you accountable in this relationship and in this home. It is your job to find out what I want to do and to lead your family in doing it. Therefore, wives, be subjective be in submission to your husbands in this respect. Now, I have some advice for those of you that are not married. If you're a woman, I have some counsel. Very important. If you find a guy that sets off all the bells and whistles, and the chemistry is going, and everything looks great, but you don't think you can follow him? Don't marry him. Just don't marry him. Because under God, you are obligated to follow his leadership. And if you don't trust it, don't go there. Don't put yourself in that position. You can be unhappily married in a worse state than some people think they are single. I'm going to say more about that in a minute.
But marriage is not a panacea for all of your unhappiness. It may get worse. You know, you may marry Bozo the Clown or something. And now you're just sunk. Because according to the scripture, you've got to somehow honor this guy. You've got to somehow respect him. You've got to somehow come under his authority. Who wants to do that if the guy's a nutcase? And there's plenty of guys that are nutcases. And you don't want to get hooked up with one. That's just, this is common sense. If this is what the Bible says, don't go there. Because God makes the man responsible to provide leadership in his home. And when he does not do that, God holds him accountable for the results. Now, listen, we live in a fallen world. So what happens when the man provides leadership and and the woman refuses to follow? That's on her head. God holds the husband responsible to provide the leadership, to set the tone, to, to cast the direction, to hold the vision of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about Christ. Okay, it is his responsibility to set that tone. We're going to serve God. As for me and my house, we are going to serve God. That is my determined purpose, to honor God. And he sets that tone. And the wife says, I don't like that. I want to do something else. Well, then that's on her head. And the scripture has some very sage advice for those who end up married to rebellious or unbelieving people. If the unbeliever wants to leave, let them leave. Let them go. Does that sound harsh? Because there can be no compromise about the direction under God. But then the scripture says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless before him. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. What is the message? Adam And today, Jesus Christ gave His life for His bride. He left His throne of glory. He came to this miserable planet. He took on the form of human flesh. He faced all the temptations. He went to the cross. He hung there and died separated from his father by the sin-bearer of the world, and shed his blood, the scripture says, for the joy set before him, his bride. He gave up all that was rightfully his in his father's presence of glory and came to this earth At one point, he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He took on a life of poverty and humbled himself in obedience and went to the cross for his bride. Because he loved her. And that's what it took to enable his bride to achieve the potential for which God had made her. Every time I get into a counseling situation, and I don't do it so much anymore because I just get tired of beating my gums when no one's listening, but every time I get into a counseling situation, the men want me to read their wives the verse about submission. And the wives want me to read their husbands the verse about loving them. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you're married and you're a man, my Bible tells me that you die 
to yourself for the love of your wife. That she is the number one person in your life. That you put her above all else. That serving her and loving her and helping her to become all that God made her to be is your mission in life. And I have some advice if you're not married. If you don't want to do that, don't get married. You're better off single. If you're going to live for yourself, don't get married. If you're going to live for yourself, you're going to have a miserable marriage. And wives, (laughs) honor and respect this person that you have attached yourself to in a partnership. Now, there's nothing in the Scripture, and I want to hasten to say this just because it always comes up. There is nothing in the Scripture that says a woman should violate the will of God because her husband has told her to do something that's sinful. Nothing in the Bible says that. We, you know, the Bible tells us to honor and obey the government, right? Sure it does. But then what did the apostles do when the, when the leading authorities chastised them and told them, don't speak about the name of Jesus? They said, we must obey God rather than men. Okay. And again, there's where that First Corinthians passage comes into play. If you have an ungodly man in your life who is telling you to do ungodly things, the Bible's very plain. Don't do it. Don't do it. Respectfully decline. And if you're threatened, move yourself out of the situation. God does not expect you to sin because you've got a crazy man at the helm. The Bible's pretty clear about that. But what a lot of people want to call sin is not sin. What a lot of people want to excuse their misbehavior for is just because they don't like the direction it's going. Marriage is a partnership, and its purpose is to bring glory to Jesus Christ through the lives. And as believers, we have that privilege that men can model as husbands the love that Christ has for the church. That women can model as wives the honor and commitment that the church has to Jesus Christ. And that together they can reflect to the watching world something very amazing. And and I'm here to, to say very clearly, marriage is not what makes you whole. The person who makes you whole is Jesus. Marriage is not what gives you an identity or a place in society. You have that already. Singleness is an honorable calling. And Paul, in fact, in in Corinth, in this terrible city where the whole moral culture had declined, somewhat like it is in America today, the Apostle Paul says, it may be better for you, like me, to remain single. Because I'll tell you what, today it is more and more difficult for a godly man and a godly woman to to connect and find each other. Most people are off living for themselves lives that are, are set up for a bad marriage. And the Apostle Paul upholds singleness as a choice in life that is fulfilling. Another thing that that many people make a mistake in marriage is they expect their spouse to meet their deepest needs. And that is a formula for disaster. Because there's only one person that I know that can meet the deepest needs of your heart. And that is Jesus Christ. And if you think that your spouse is going to be able to fill his role You have set yourself up for disappointment. And you have set him or her up for failure. Because they are not going to be able to be God in your life. They will not live up to that expectation. Your happiness, your joy, your peace, 
your sense of dignity and personality and, and your, your sense of acceptance must come from Jesus Christ. And if you think a marriage is going to make that happen, you are already on the slippery slope toward marital disaster. Because it isn't going to solve that problem. And so many times, you know, couples expect each other to make one another happy. (laughs) That's not going to happen. Your happiness comes from Jesus in your walk with Him. You bring that to the relationship. And if you don't have it, the relationship is not going to provide it. It's just going to make life more complicated. Because you have to die to yourself. To be successfully married. And most people need to learn that long before that event. So marriage becomes a picture. When two people are submitted to each other in humility, the husband recognizing his sacred responsibility under God to provide spiritual direction The wife recognizing her role in lifting up and magnifying the relationship of the church to Jesus Christ. Walking together in a partnership of mutual submissiveness and respectfulness that seeks together to exalt Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that outside of Christ, marriage just doesn't work very well? It's tough enough in Christ. Outside of Christ, there's not a chance. Because the standard of success is dependent on being spirit-filled. If it's really, really going to work. And along the way, let me just say a few things here. Along the way. Learning to forgive one another in the crucible of marriage is one of the, the, the highest opportunities to, to reflect a walk with Jesus Christ. Not that we ever have to forgive Him, but He forgives us so much. Love covers a multitude of sins. And how necessary it is to learn to forgive each other. How necessary it is to learn to say, I am so sorry. How necessary it is to say, I let you down. How necessary to learn to walk together as a team. Wow. It's a high calling and a high privilege. In the end, and I'll pick up with this in the message on eschatology, but in the end... Jesus Christ comes back for His bride. Every tribe and tongue and nation are there at the marriage supper. The bridegroom and the bride have come together. And what happens? Unfolding before them after the marriage supper is the millennial kingdom. And what are they doing? Jesus Christ, the last Adam, has planted His feet back on this soil in Jerusalem, and His bride with Him as co-regents, co-heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, now exercise rule and dominion over the planet. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the things that creep upon the earth, The last Adam and his bride, hand in hand, standing together at the face of a new millennium. And what are they doing but what God told them to do in the first place? Have a dominion and a reign of love. Fill the earth. Replenish or fill it, multiply it, and plenish it. And have dominion because The last Adam reigns and recovers what was lost in the first one. Isn't that amazing how it all comes full circle? And it's all there in Genesis. 
So, I hope you've heard me this morning. I hope that you carry away from this the biblical truth that men and women are created equal. There is no difference in Jesus Christ. I hope you take away from this that singleness is a noble calling and so is marriage. But if you choose to get married, God has established the criteria of the relationship. And if you choose marriage under God, then you choose His method. And when you choose that, you must die to yourself like never before entering into that relationship. And your highest calling is to picture for those who watch you the relationship between Christ and his church. And that can be fun. Or marriage can be a disaster, depending on where Jesus Christ is in your life. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it, and that you would bless us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.